Well, good morning, everybody. We are continuing on in our sermon series called That's Good News. And in our small groups this month, we've been utilizing Shane Bishop's book, That's Good News, to help us better evangelize, which is one of those scary words you hope to never have to hear about on a Sunday morning. It's one of the scariest words in all of religion, evangelism, because I think, just thinking about it, it scares us. Because we think we should be as well-versed and as successful as maybe even Billy Graham or John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist Church. Uh, but that's not, that's not true at all. I want to def- debunk that myth. Evangelism doesn't mean that we have to preach in front of dozens or hundreds or thousands of people at any given time. Although that'd be something really cool to aspire towards, but that's not what it is. You see, evangelism, it isn't what you think it is. (laughs) Simply put, evangelism, as we've gone over the last couple of weeks, it's just sharing the good news. Even if it's one person at a time, we are winning people for Christ by sharing the good news. And it's important to know that our work with evangelism is never, ever done. No matter how old you get or how retired from preaching the good word you get, there is always someone who you can share the good news with. And as an added benefit, you know, I think one of the great things about sharing good news is it makes you feel good, too. It's, a, it's an added benefit. I promise, Scott's on honor. I'm not lying, okay? I'm not like an infomercial trying to sell you to go out on a street corner. That's not what I'm doing. There isn't a bunch of steak knives that are coming in the mail as a bonus gift. No. Sharing good news, it is good for you. And I want to take just a brief moment every sermon in this series to just share good news, to prove to you that good news, number one, does exist, and number two, it makes you feel good. Uh, Let me tell you about a record-breaking sports event that I read about last week. Now, some of you are going to roll your eyes because I always use sports metaphors, but I promise this is more sports-adjacent than it is about sports, okay? Last week in Hershey, Pennsylvania, A minor league hockey team called the Bears, uh, who are affiliated with the NHL Washington Capitals, they set a record, not for goals scored or penalty minutes, as you think of hockey, but they set a record for the number of teddy bears tossed onto an ice skating rink by fans. In a total of four minutes after Hershey's first goal, over 74,000 Stuffed animals rained down onto the ice and were donated to help local kids. One of the newest Hershey players, his name was Chase Prisky. He was quoted afterwards. It was too good not to share this quote. First, you're celebrating the goal, and then you start getting pelted with teddy bears. It's just a phenomenal atmosphere when tens of thousands of bears start raining down upon you. A program and a tradition that started back in 2001 called the Hershey Care Bears Program. Over a half a million cuddly teddy bears have been donated to kids in need. In all, it took over 40 minutes to clear the ice so that they could resume the the game. Uh, That's some good news, isn't it? 74,000 teddy bears donated. I always, I always like throwing in these little Reader's Digest uh, illustrations. That's what I like to call them. Because they prove my point. Doesn't it feel good to share a story like that? To share good news? We have no problem 
sharing that type of good news with our friends, our family, our coworkers, even with strangers as we're out at brunch after worship this morning. We like to share the insane amount of teddy bears that go on an ice skating rink. But here's the thing, the thing that I want to challenge you with. As Christians, it's hardly the best news we've ever heard. <laughs> you see, the good news of Jesus Christ is the best news that we've ever had the chance to hear and to share. And because of that, we have a responsibility. As Christians, we need to enthusiastically share the good news. And that's why we're spending this year at Church Lakes talking a little bit about the life-giving, life-shaping, life-transforming good news of evangelism. Now, we want to see people ideally grasp a hold of the good news for themselves. But how are they to grasp a hold if we're not out in the world telling them about the good news? <laughs> and I can tell you, uh, first from a firsthand experience of working with our youth uh, for the last decade or a little bit longer than that, there is nothing better than telling someone the good news and for them to actually grasp a hold of it. It is incredible. It's unforgettable. It's a mountaintop moment to see it click in for someone how good the good news is. As we talked about last week, that's why we need to go out of these doors and spread the seed, the good news, no matter what ground it falls on. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is just to be sowers of the seed. But it's pretty cool when you get to see the seed take hold and you get to see the fruit of your labor, a risk that you took just to see that wheat start to grow and flourish on its own. It's just amazing. It's a mountaintop moment for me when I see people grab a hold of the faith, and I just have just a small part in it. Not the whole complete part, but just a small part that we play in that. It's natural. In these moments where we actually share the good news and get to see people grasp a hold of it, it's natural to see and feel like we could conquer the world. We're on top of the mountains, right? We could run through the proverbial brick wall when we have success like that. It's easy in these mountaintop moments to be enthusiastic, to be passionate about our faith. We feel like we could uh, just about take over Billy Graham's own uh, evangelistic circuit. <laughs> but as inevitably happens, I don't know about this for you, but for me, when we have those mountaintop moments, so often after the mountaintop, there is one heck of a valley that follows afterwards. Why does it seem to always be that way? <laughs> what I mean is, it's natural in life after these amazing moments. It's also natural to have kind of a letdown effect afterwards, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> How many times after these big life-down moments do we feel like we're in a funk, that we get kind of, we got it sucked into the muck in the mire of the world? Maybe... It's after you just finished training for a marathon after the big day, even when it's negative 15 degrees out or whatever it's been like. You get to the big day. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten to the big day, and as soon as I hit the finish line, I think, oh, it's over? <laughs> All that work and it's over? <laughs> what am I going to do next? Well, no, sorry, that's, that's me, not you. Maybe, maybe, though, you spent the past year planning for a wedding, Remember, remember the wedding days that are coming up in your life, maybe, or have already happened? Now, the big day, it gets there, and it goes off without a hitch, except, except for getting hitched, of course, right? I wrote, Chase can attest to this upstairs, I wrote my sermon, take a big pause for laughter because of a dad joke. <laughs> it's actually written in there, so, okay, sorry. 
But after the, after the wedding, how many times do we have that letdown? We think and wonder, what's next? <laughs> what did I just get myself into? May, maybe it's not a wedding, but maybe it's after the birth of the first child. There's sometimes a letdown. Maybe it's because you just finished that, that big project at work. What's, what's coming next? What's, why am I feeling so let down? Maybe it's a dissertation after grad school. Maybe it's that home renovation project that's been going on for three years and it's finally un- over and you wonder, what's next? Do you ever wonder what's next for you? Do you ever wonder what's next in your faith journey? You know, in the mountaintop moments of your faith journey, like saying, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you the rest of my days. It's natural to have a letdown. It's, it's natural to not know where you're going next. Now, if you are in the midst of wandering in the wilderness, as I'll call it, and you need to get out of that funk, that letdown effect, you know, the mountaintop moment of running through a brick wall the bricks seem to come down on top of you sometimes afterwards. Look, I want to ask you a tough question this morning. Do you feel the same desire? Do you feel the same enthusiasm that you did the day that you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Do you have that same drive, that same passion? <laughs> Look, I'm not picking on you, friends, because it's only natural. It's only natural. To over the course of time to have that fire die down, that drive, that passion start to go out a little bit. But that's why we got to work on it. Look, I realize that the storms of life, the hardships, they take a toll. They discourage us. They kind of stop stoking the fire. Or the busyness of life, the planning, the scheduling. We get distracted and distraction sometimes stops us from fanning the flame. Maybe right now you know that feeling of discouragement in your life for personal reasons, work reasons, whatever. (laughs) Maybe you know the feeling of distraction that's reigning supreme in your life. If you've been in the past week consumed by discouragement or distraction, maybe you're stuck in that rut, that let down feeling after having a mountaintop moment. Maybe that rut's been going on for a lot longer than you'd care to share. You know, we all end up in that rut. We all do. I'm no exception to that either. Sometimes we just lose the fire, the passion that we once had. So what are we to do? Are we just shrug our shoulders and become apathetic? Are we going to do something about it? Are we going to rekindle this fire, this burning passion that we're supposed to have? And to reclaim that fire, I think I found a pretty good scripture for this week that we're going to focus on out of 2 Timothy, starting right at the beginning of his letter. Paul's letter to Timothy, right in chapter 1. Paul gives us a clue this morning on how we can motivate ourselves to not only become evangelists, but enthusiastic ones, which is awfully hard to do in life sometimes. Will you read along with me out of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 6? For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel 
relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be found holy and acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you feel unenthusiastic about God, or if you feel unenthusiastic about evangelism, look, I get it. But Paul implores us at the beginning of his letter through Timothy to rekindle, rekindle the gift of God that is within. Rekindle. It's not a mistake that he's using that fire analogy here. Because let me tell you about Timothy. Let me tell you why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy was an evangelist, just like the great apostle Paul. He was under his wing. It's got to be tough to be under the wing of someone that's so successful, but I digress. Timothy wasn't, though, what you would call a typical evangelist that you and I think of, at least. He's not the preacher on the street corner with the bullhorn. He's not the uh, hold up the sign, repent the end is near type of guy either. I joke in jest with those illustrations every week through this series because, you know, to be an evangelist, you got to be a little crazy. you got to be a little unique, okay? Uh, and I think there's some truth behind that because you have to realize you have to be bold to be an evangelist, to share that at work. You have to be a little bit daring to share it with a stranger that you never met before. you got to be a risk taker, not knowing what someone's going to do when they hear the good news. Timothy was not bold. Timothy wasn't daring, and he wasn't a risk taker either. He was timid. He was young and inexperienced. He was unsure of who to trust. We read that in the book of Acts. And maybe, just maybe, you hear those lists of attributes of Timothy, and you think, "Mm, I have a lot more common with Timothy than I do Paul. (laughs) But Timothy had one thing that was awfully cool. He had a love for God, and he had a love for Jesus Christ. And because of that, he was unafraid to make himself look like a fool for God. You see, evangelism may not have been Timothy's best characteristic, his gift mix. But nonetheless, Timothy knew it was important still to share the good news. Just as an FYI this morning, uh, Jesus doesn't give uh, us a pass. He doesn't give the shy a pass. He doesn't give the introverts a pass from being evangelists. No, we all have a duty to tell others the good news. We are all to be evangelists in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, whether you're a Timothy or you're a Paul. But to make matters worse for Timothy, not only was he timid and unexperienced, but he was also under attack. That's a common refrain we see in our scriptures, in our Bible. The apostles, the disciples, they're always under attack by the Roman authorities or by the Jewish people, or it didn't matter. They were under attack. And you see, in the city of Ephesus, where Timothy was evangelizing, he was under attack. (laughs) He was attempting to evangelize in a community that was, quite honestly, disturbing and misguided. (laughs) We read that in the, the letter to Ephesus. In Ephesians, but it, it was a it was a place of division and lies. It was a place where Timothy was struggling, not just spiritually, but physically. It was a place where Timothy wasn't sure of himself. 
How many times do we have those problems at our workplaces, in our homes, and in our schools? <laughs> Paul knows this. That's the, how he opens his letter to him in 2 Timothy. He writes to him and he says, I quote, he says, rekindle the gift of God that is within. Timothy has been in the midst of this incredibly difficult time and I'm sure you can understand that being under Paul, the successful evangelizer, that's difficult for Timothy to struggle. It's disappointing to not have success. And as a pastor, I can tell you firsthand, I've been a part of quite a few failed adventures for Jesus. And you take it on the chin. It's part of taking a risk for Jesus' failure. But Paul, he's reiterating right here at the beginning of 2 Timothy, he's saying, he's saying don't give up. <laughs> Don't back down. Don't give in. He goes on. He says, and I quote, For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, a spirit of giving in, a spirit of letting failure reign in our life, but rather he gave us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline to stick at it, even in the midst of a failure. He says, don't be ashamed of, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, someone who's willing to be a fool for Jesus, but join in me in the suffering for the gospel. I like that word suffering because that denotes we got something on the line. We've got to have skin in the game. We've got to take an actual risk if we're going to be an evangelist. Paul is saying we got to continue to share the good news. Even when our success seems limited, even when it seems insignificant, Timothy was struggling. He was struggling with his insignificance, his unsuccess. But Paul says, hang in there. <laughs> in fact, it's not the only place in Scripture where we see this layer of communication going on between us and God, where he's telling us to hang in there, to be evangelists, even in the midst of life circumstances that are failure when you look around. When you feel like you're in a rut, Often, it's because you feel like you've been in the same pattern over and over again. You feel like you've been let down after a mountaintop moment. How can you overcome that? How can you get out of the funk? How can you get back into being enthusiastic about your faith? Maybe you're looking for a new direction, a new ministry to get involved with. That's one area of your life you can do it is by doing through missions. But I think there's something larger at work behind the scenes. For you see, I think we need to realize, to overcome these letdown moments, we need to remember that each of us individually is gifted. Gifted, all right? Paul was gifted. He had a gift mix. Timothy was gifted. His gift mix wasn't the same as Paul, but he was still gifted. And hear me, friends, what we read in our scriptures is that everyone is gifted, and so are you. You are gifted, no matter how old or young, no how many are inexperienced or experienced you are. It doesn't matter. If you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have a gift. You do, a spiritual gift. Now, I don't want you to hear or think that I'm handing out participation trophies, that you get a gift of this just so you may, I want to make you feel better. I'm serious. Legitimately, each of us has a gift. How do I know this? Because it's in our scriptures. I do. In 1 Peter, Peter writes a letter and tells us how we know each of us individually has a gift mix. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Like good stewards of the manifold of grace of God, serve one another with wit whatever gift each of you has received. He doesn't list all the gifts because it's not an exhaustive list here in 1 Peter. But he's saying we are each individually given a gift. We continue on. Whoever speaks 
which is one gift, must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves, which is another gift, must do so with the strength that God supplies so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Peter says we're each individually gifted. It's promised to us by God, not just in 1 Peter, but also in another scripture that we learned in Core 52. I talked about it last week. Acts 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what are we supposed to do with this power, this gift mix that we have? Acts 1, 8 says we are to be witnesses. Witnesses. We are all witnesses. This is God's promise to us, friends, that we're going to be getting a gift mix. We have a gift mix, but we're to use this gift mix to be witnesses to Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth. By the way, this, once again, this is me preaching to myself more than anyone else. But I want to put out a kind reminder this morning that you are gifted, yes. But you are gifted by God. It has nothing to do with you and my big ego in this moment. It has everything to do with God. I love this illustration that I fell, apart, uh, fell upon this week. It's by author and pastor Philip Yancey. He shares a story about another pastor by the name of Dr. Paul Brand who was speaking at a medical college in India. He was preaching a sermon called Let Your Light Shine. And as every good pastor, they got their illustration. So up on his lectern, where he's preaching from, he had an old oil lamp. Now, it had a cotton wick and a shallow dish of oil in it as the flame burned. Now, he put in just enough oil so that in the middle of his sermon, the wick went dry, began to burn black, and smoke emanated, and he started to cough from the smell. And he immediately used the opportunity, never knowing when it was going to burn out in his sermon, he used the opportunity to say, some of us here are like this wick. We're trying to shine for the glory of God, but we stink at it. <laughs> That's what happens when you try to use yourself as fuel instead of the Spirit of God, which is the oil. That's the key here. Friends, if we don't use our gift mix, this gift that we get from God, if we don't use it for godly things, then we just end up stinking. <laughs> That's the reality. For some of us, we're in this moment where we got to figure out maybe what our gift mix is. And here's the thing. If, no matter, once again, how old or experienced you may be in life, your gift mix may change depending on what current circumstances you find yourself in. You're always having to be constantly understanding what your gift is. If you don't know what your gift is, literally go on your phone right now. I don't care if you check out for the rest of the sermon. Literally type in and do spiritual gift inventory. You can find a five-minute version. You can find a 60-minute version of taking and answering questions to find out what your gift mix is. But find out what your gift mix is. Find it. Discover it. And then Use it. <laughs> Use it to be a witness for God. Because that is how we become non-apathetic. That is how we become enthusiastic for God. By using the things that we're good at to make people and tell them the good news and meet them where they're at. Of course, now that you maybe know what your gift mix is in that moment, you also have to flex your gift mix muscles, okay? You gotta put, this is what's really important when we come across that path in evangelism, okay? If you aren't using your gift mix to tell people the good news, then you're not actually evangelizing. 
Because we only evangelize when we do it effectively, all right? None of, not, not all of us are meant to be preachers. I get that. That is a gift, special gift mix. Not all of us are, are meant to be that, but some of us are. Some of us are. Not all of us are meant to be missionaries. That, that's a tough lifestyle, but some of us are. <laughs> not all of us are meant to be trustees. Not all of us are meant to be Habitat for Humanity coordinators. Not all of us are meant to be choir participants like I am, okay? But some of us are. You're supposed to use your gift mix to bring people to Jesus Christ. We are all meant to do something with our gift mix. We're all to be witnesses for the gospel message. And as Christians, look, this is where the rubber meets the road. You've got to buckle down and actually use your gift mix. <laughs> if you find yourself in a letdown or in a rut or unenthusiastic about God or about church or about anything, friends, you need to tap in to the Spirit of God, which gives you a gift mix to get out of that rut. For instance, if you've got the gift of teaching, friends, good news. I have a way to get you involved in teaching here at Church of Lakes. <laughs> if you've got the gift of administration, God knows I don't. That's why I married someone who does have that. Consider organizing something through the, through the church. I can help plug you in to doing that at the church. It's a way of doing it. If you have the gift of helping other people, which is an overlooked that is an overlooked gift from the Holy Spirit, the gift of what it's called helps, the gift of willing to happily help others. Consider one of the many million different ways that you can serve in ministries inside and outside the church. Once again, just talk to me after service. I can help you get plugged in. The fun part about being a part of ministry is that we all have opportunities and windows and avenues that God opens for us to use our gift mix. But are you actually doing it? Are you actually using your special talents to make witnesses for Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we know that your Holy Spirit is with us now, that it's giving us a special gift mix that we're called to go out into the world and make a difference with. Lord, give us the courage to answer the call. To, to make a difference in everywhere that we go, to spread and be your witnesses of the good news so that people may come to know you as a loving and amazing Heavenly Father. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.